Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program. The Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools are here every Saturday, and we're here, come hello, high water, rain, hail or shine. It's been raining this week, but we're still here, uh, and we're happy for the rain. But we're still here because our public schools need defending and they need promoting. So we have a website that you can find out more about us at www.adogs.info and we are about public education that's public in purpose and outcome. It's public in access. Above all, it is open to all children and all children matter as far as the dogs are concerned and it is also, and it should be, public in ownership and control because it's the only one that can be publicly accountable. Now, this afternoon, I'd like to talk about the accountability business. And this is press release 749, which you will find early next week at www.adogs.info. It's time for the Australian governments to take over administration of private school systems. One of the major reasons for the withdrawal of state aid to private religious schools in the 19th century was their lack of public accountability for the expenditure of public money. I would have thought this was a no-brainer. If there's public money involved, then there should be public accountability and there should be ministerial responsibility for the expenditure of that public money. Now, our forefathers in the 19th century established and provided sole funding to the public systems, open to all children and administered by a public administration that was answerable through the Minister to Parliament. And in those days, ministerial responsibility actually meant something. We need to return to the basic principles of ministerial responsibility, accountability for expenditure of public money and sole public funding of public schools. Private schools not only divide the society and undermine our democratic democratic political and legal systems through a corrupt old boys network, they also undermine the most basic principle of proper governance, accountability for the expenditure of public money. We hear a lot about a return to basics from private school promoters like Kevin Donnelly and Jennifer Buckingham. Perhaps they should turn their attention to this most basic principle of accountability for public expenditure. Since the return of state aid to private religious systems of education in the 1960s, accountability for what now amounts to billions of dollars of public money on an annual basis goes begging. The contracting out of the education of one-third of our nation's children is a failed experiment, if only on the grounds of lack of accountability. Dogs have produced many, many advertisements and press releases over the last 50 years exposing the total lack of accountability for expenditure of public money by private school systems particularly the Catholic system and now the Seventh-day Adventist system. In recent years, a series of Auditor-General reports at both the state and federal level have also been exposing the rorting of public monies. For years, listeners, the dogs approached the Auditor-Generals and said, what are you doing about this? And finally, they have done something about it. 
The Save Our Schools group uh, with Trevor Cobald have alerted public school supporters to the latest Auditor-General concerns in New South Wales. And you can go to their website and read what I'm going to now read to you. There is an Auditor-General's report, as I've just said, and the report is of particular interest because this Auditor-General is demanding that the Public Administrative Authority, which is the New South Wales Department of Education, is actually responsible for making sure that the monies provided by the federal government through Section 96 grants actually get spent for the purpose for which they are given, because we know that they're not. Monies that are specifically given for disadvantaged children are in many cases going to build, and they have been for 50 years, going to build new schools, new needy schools, or going to wealthy schools. Now, this report of the New South Wales Auditor-General found that the Department of Education failed to ensure that the Catholic and Seventh-day Adventist school systems were accountable for the way they spend New South Wales government funding. It said that the Department does not know how these systems distribute taxpayer funding to their member schools. The report also said that the Department has failed to adequately verify enrolments for funding purposes and monitor the governance of private schools. In New South Wales, as in Victoria, private schools are funded as either a system or a non-system school. And according to the report, the only two systems for funding purposes are the Catholic and the Seventh-day Adventist systems. And the Department... And this is the New South Wales Education Department provides per capita funding through the systems authorities which can reallocate and distribute funds to their member schools according to their own methodology. For non-system schools, the department provides per capita funding directly to the school. Now, the Auditor-General report identified a major failing in the department's oversight of how the Catholic and Seventh-day Adventist systems reallocate their funding. They get this bundle of money, no strings attached. So what do they do with it? And the Auditor-General says it is. It said that it's important for the department to know how funding is reallocated to ensure adequate accountability of the use of public funds. That's a no-brainer, isn't it? Remarkably, however, it found that the department does not know how these systems distribute funds to their member schools as it does not require the systems to report on how much funding each school receives. The Auditor-General recommended that the department should strengthen its oversight of the use of funds and how systems reallocate funding in order to increase accountability for public funding. It said that system authorities should be required to reallocate funds across their systems on a needs basis and they should verify that they've done this in reports to the department. The report also found that the department does not know how much recurrent government funding is retained by systems for administrative costs. They could do anything they like with this money and we know they do. System authorities are not required to report to the department how much of their grant was retained for administrative or centralised expenses. Now, this is a major issue. A recent report by the Australian National Audit Office found that that many private school systems do not report on their administrative costs and centralised expenditure all around Australia. And in 2015, only nine out of 25 systems reported these costs. It also found that there are very large variations between systems that do report on this expenditure and some are diverting considerable funding to their own administration. The proportion devoted to central administration ranged between 0.1% and 18.9% of total recurrent funding, with a value between 100000 and $30.7 million. The New South Wales report, this, uh, that was the one we started with, we've just been talking about the, the National Audit Office, But the New South Wales report also criticised the department for failing to directly validate the enrolments of private schools. 
This is important to avoid the possibility of fraud by overstatement of enrolments to generate higher funding from the New South Wales government. So there you are. The, the schools can tell as many lies as they like. They can get all the funding they like but there's no strings attached. And of course, dear listeners, the only way to have strings attached is to take them over and make them public schools. That's what they did in the 19th century. Is, is it beyond our wit or understanding to do it in the 21st century? Now, there's been a report by the Queensland Auditor General about all of this too, but that was back in 2015. And it actually found, it proved that some private schools were overstating their enrolments to get more state funding because these private schools get both federal and state funding. It estimated the overcounting of students at 14% and the overfunding conservatively, conservatively at 1.5 million. Now, going back to the New South Wales Auditor's Report, that also found that the department relies on schools and system authorities to engage a registered auditor to certify the accuracy of information on their enrolments and usage of grants. However, it does not have a process to verify the independence of the auditor. So they can get their own auditor to tell whatever fibs they want them to tell. The Auditor-General recommended greater security of registration and independence of the auditors to increase the confidence in the accuracy of the information that was given by the private schools to the Education Department itself. The report also recommended that the Department should conduct investigations to verify the enrolments and the expenditure of funds. Another area of concern was the lack of oversight by the New South Wales Education Standards Authority of the compliance of private schools with registration requirements. In 2017, 70% of schools that were re-registered were not assessed against the proper governance requirement of the New South Wales Education Act. The The one thing that gives the New South Wales Department, and also in Victoria, Uh, gives the government any kind of control over private schools is the registration process. Uh, They have to be registered before they can open their gates. Now, the department in New South Wales, listen to this, allows school systems such as the Catholic system to self-regulate. A bit like the banks, isn't it? Systems monitor their schools' compliance with the registration requirements and the NECA, the, National, the, the, the standards authorities, inspectors, monitor the system authority processes over a five-year cycle. The report recommended that this authority, this um, registration authority, should increase random inspections of schools to ensure that system authorities are adequately monitoring compliance with all registration requirements, including the proper governance. Now, this New South Wales report is just the latest in a long, long list of audit reports highlighting the poor government oversight of how private school systems distribute their government funding. For example, the recent National Audit Office report slammed the Commonwealth Department of Education for failing to ensure its funding of private school systems was distributed according to need and for not knowing how private school systems distribute their funding. And there's been no change from the 2009 Audit Office report that found that the department did not have information on the funding formula that private school systems use to distribute funds to their affiliated schools. Back in that 2009 Audit Report, Office report, the dogs discovered that uh, a private school in Australia gets looked at once every 50 years for compliance and what it's doing with its public funding, which is really quite, quite laughable, isn't it? I don't know why you even have a Department of Education in Canberra if it can't actually look at where the money's going. The fact is that private schools and systems in Australia are largely self-regulated. 
and the history of government funding of private schools is a history of government and bureaucratic failure to ensure public transparency and accountability on how the private school organisations actually spend billions and billions and billions of dollars of taxpayer money. And some private school organisations, notably the Catholic school organisations, have very, for a long time arrogantly refused to meet legislative and regulatory requirements relating to accountability for the use of taxpayer funds. Now, this happened in the 19th century. The Catholic bishops refused the uh, government inspectors into their schools and they refused to comply with curriculum requirements. And what did the government do? It withdrew public funding. So dogs are saying, the time has come. We pay for these systems. We pay for these schools. If we're going to have proper democratic accountability for billions and billions of dollars of our public money, the time has come. It's time to take them over. Now, Trevor Cobalt and Save Our Schools and other state school supporters aren't yet at this point, and certainly our politicians aren't. But give it time. Here at the Dogs, we keep on keeping on saying these things, knowing that eventually, eventually, if we are going to stay having a democracy in this country, eventually these things will be solved. And once again these schools will be taken over because they are not doing their job. So dogs note that the only way around the accountability problems to take private, the private schools over and make them public or give them the option of being completely financially independent. So that, listeners, is our press release for this week. We'll have a bit of music now.
Well, hello, Robert. Um, Jane Carr has been writing again, and you'd like to tell oh, us yeah. about, about that? Welcome, by oh, the way. Oh, yes. No, that's all right. Uh, hello, Jane. How is it? Yeah, I'm still, my, I'm still the roving reporter at the moment, so I'm up there in the studio to mm-hmm. get stuck into the things. But, um, yeah, there's a couple of things. Firstly, Jane Carr has been writing again. Now, I, I noticed you've been talking about the New South Wales Office General's Report. Yes. Um, it's exactly the same, almost word for word, um, as the Victorian Office General's Report. That's interesting. Which is almost exactly the same as the Federal Office General's Report, which is almost exactly the same as the Queensland Office General's Report. And there's nothing new in any of this. It's just pretty obvious what's going on. Um, and no one's politically going to do anything about it. It's one of those open sores. Everyone can point at it and then move on. It's quite ridiculous, really. But um, back to the sort of the whole sort of thing about this Gompke 2.0 Salinas, which we've talked about in detail um, mm. over the weeks because, it, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a going issue when it comes to education funding. But finally, someone in there, it's not, not just the dogs, is opening up the field to say what's not being talked about. Yep. And Jane Carr is very interesting. She says that those of us who believe in the primacy of the only education system open to all, um, and Jane can tell you more about that, but open to all and, and, and offensive to none, namely the public education system, she says we all got our hopes up a few years ago. Well, I, I didn't, but she did. She said she allowed herself to believe that the recommendations of the 2010 Gompke Review Panel might lead to some good sense that might prevail over political expediency, over partisanship, ideology, tribalism and just plain snobbery when it came to equitable funding of our education for our children. Now this Dogonsky 2.0, she says, um, these hopes are now well and truly um, dashed, I'd say, yeah, in terms of both the Liberal and the Labor Party. Neither of them are now interested at all in the concept of the primacy of public education. Now, Jane Carroll says, we didn't fall into the same trap before this week's budget, of course. Public education advocates had learnt their lesson, and the lack of expectations was vindicated. Once again, public schools were used for the purely political purposes I was up to the troublesome religious right, who so bedevil our current Prime Minister. Now, the religious chaplaincy program... <laughs> Not any available extra funding that was made permanent in a more, and, and that actually moved underlies how little the Liberals and the National Party understand the basic principles of secular, universal public education. It is open to children from families of all faith, or indeed no faith at all. Now, the terminal vision of Gonski borrowed the brand and the packaging that ripped the guts out of the product. The public school system and the students' majority that it serves was pushed into the background while both major parties tripped over themselves to satisfy the demands of their own favourite segments of the private school sector. A sector that, as a whole, serves about one-third of the school population and, of course, disproportionately draws its students from better-off families. Now, the Liberal National Party in particular has been brazen about their commitments to what they call the independent schools. Jean can tell you they're not independent at all, and I agree. Yes, mm. the Liberal National Party is brazen about this. It includes those that charge high and even ever-mounting fees. Well, that's in their uh, DNA, isn't it? Apparently, according to Christopher Pine, I've mm. heard from him lately. Anyway, uh, the Liberal National Party went on to claim in the budget their partiality towards these palaces of privilege, which is, as you said, part of their DNA. Under Turnbull's mutated and mutilated Gonski, 87% of the public schools will still not be funded to the agreed minimum school resource standard by 2023. 65% of fee charging schools, however, will be funded well above it. Now, in the run-up to the Batten by-election, the ALP stepped forward as the patron saint of Catholic schools, pledging to reinstate their former no-losers deal so that the proceeds of the past special deals for these Catholic schools by both major parties will be enshrined inside the funding. At the same time, a simmering hostilities have broken into open warfare between the sections of the Catholic and the independent schools, even within the, the Catholic sector. Finds over how best to assess parents' capacities to pay towards their children's private schooling. Oh yes, that's the right. They're needy, aren't they? they these oh, people okay. have great needs, yes. Oh, we, we spoke about this last week, how neither the Catholic schools nor the independent schools give a brass reserve. They just don't care about the majority of the kids in Australia. 
in state school. They just really don't care. They, they're just they're screaming at each other mm. to get the last shekel out of the government. They just don't care. Which I think is fascinating because most of them are religious in nature. And I'm sure, Jen, you'd have more opinions about what religious people should and shouldn't do when it comes to caring for the needy. Mm. But no, the Catholic or the independent school just, they don't care. Um, so many of them, I think, and so many of the parents perhaps have actually never met a person who has, who is homeless or who has real needs. Children who, who haven't had their breakfast, for example, before they go to school. I doubt they've ever met such people. Well, I think that's the whole point. In, in large part, for many people, what a private school is. A private school is, for many people, a school where you do not have to meet poor people in your daily routine as a child. Because poor people with high fee and schools are by definition excluded, except for perhaps a few very smart scholarship students who are very poor. And maybe the right sort of poor people. So I'm, I'm being a bit harsh here, but that's not true for every parent and every child and every, every private school. So I think that as a model needs to be recognised. The really sad other... thing is, of course, that they call themselves Christian in some of these schools. Anyway, they define yeah. themselves as Christian. In fact, mm. they have to be Christian, otherwise they wouldn't be exempt from the laws of the land. Mm. They have to be Christian, otherwise they cannot hire and fire children and teachers whenever they feel like it. Mm. You know, there's, there's, there's this exemption that religious schools have in Australia from the laws of the land. You know, so, you know we, we won't employ you, teacher, because oh, your parents are gay. So no one can say again. Mm. Anyway... Chain courage is just the underlying reason for this current melee between all the private schools fighting each other for the shekels from the government. Why in the history of school funding? It was then the country party that forced the Whitlam government to extend public funding to private schools, operating well above the Carmel target standards in order to get its schools commission then established back in 1973. Well, Beasley was only too happy to oblige, you know. That was uh, yeah. the, uh, Beasley's father, yes. He was only too happy yeah. to oblige because yeah. that family belonged to the uh, morally armament group. Mm. Yeah, no, 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 you're absolutely right. I mean, Carol and you should have to then have a chat. Uh, this contaminated what was conceived as the needs-based game by building an attention between needs and entitlement to the rationale to cut the funding. She's got a point there, I think. Um, she goes on to say, in his drive to use public funding to fuel parental choice and competition among schools and parents, our government forced on the majority of schools a funding model more suited to the minority, that is, the independent private schools. School systems, with their capacity to achieve internal reciprocities and economies of scale in the interest of efficiency and fairness, didn't quite fit. All of which begs the question, what kind of democracy has Australia become? Are we a democracy where a government sends the equivalent of a thousand or more teachers' salaries to schools with privacy alone bringing twice the level of Commonwealth's own resource standards that of those schools that really need the teachers? This is a policy for which no educational justification has ever been mounted by either the donors of this published process or indeed the recipients. It's difficult to find any other form of justification for this farcical practice unique to Australia. Keep saying this, and I'm going to say it again. What we have in Australia where parents in some private schools provide more money than is needed to educate their children, and on top of that, the government gives these schools money. Now, there is no intellectual or moral or educational justification for this, but it happens. It is happening. It has happened, and it will continue to happen. And this unique practice, and this unique practice, is unique to Australia. Nobody else in the world is quite so stupid. Jane Carey goes on to say, if these high-fee schools took on the most challenging and costly kids to teach, perhaps there might be some justification for this public subsidy. But they have long given preference to lavish facilities over providing the students with high support needs. She's right. If you go to a ridiculously over-resourced private school, which, by the way, um, my perspective is very simple. If parents wish to cough up $25,000 per year per, 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 per child to educate their child, um, go for it. Um, I think that's a wonderful thing. You can do whatever you like. 
you can even do it on the basis of religious principles as long as you don't break the law. Um, that's just freedom of religion in this country. There's no reason why anyone should, shouldn't or couldn't do that. However, it's none of my business. I don't wish to pay for it. And That is not freedom of religion. Well, well no, these schools do not enrol high-needs students. They specifically exclude, in the vast majority of cases, any sort of high-needs student. So there is no justification for any government money going to these kids, especially on the grounds of, oh, well, they enrol very difficult children at these rich schools. They don't. Nor, by the way, are these high-fee schools role models or lighthouse schools for the less well-endowed. High-fee schools compete on the basis that they are superior and publicly inflated. They have many resources. Um, so they're not necessarily educationally excellent. No, not at all. Not at all. So, so, mm. so the idea was, oh, well, we should do it in a few cases so we can see how good everything can be for everyone. No, these schools aren't educationally excellent in any particular reason. The wealthy and don't always have intelligent children, do well, they? Statistically, <laughs> yeah, statistically, they don't, no. Mm. Um, look, if we looked at a simple return on investment in Australia, they'd be left choking in the dust if they're much cheaper and more efficiently run government selective schools. Oh, yes, yes. Or indeed, I would say, much more efficiently than just government schools. And I'll be talking mm. about what's in the little government school out in the country of Victoria later in the post. So this money goes to these schools with no justifiable argument even put. They just say, oh, well, no losers or something. The only argument they put is that the parents who send their kids to these schools pay taxes. And if they're richer, then they pay more taxes, and so therefore they deserve more money back on the more taxes they pay. Unless they spend that money to get an accountant to make sure they pay less tax, which is well, often what yeah. happens, of course. The other argument, of course, is that many private school parents make sacrifices, and so therefore are morally justified in getting some taxpayers' money for the sacrifices they make. I would argue if you get the money back, it's not a sacrifice. Like, if you go to the altar and sacrifice to your God a big bowl of grapes, you don't take the bowl of grapes back with you. Yes. <laughs> because, that's, because that's not actually a sacrifice. No. So you can't say, I make sacrifices, therefore I want taxpayer confession. It just, that's not what sacrifice is. I think these parents um, don't understand the meaning of the word. Anyway, uh, I, I do suggest um, people interested in Jane Carroll, it's worth, mm -hmm. worth it. She's a good writer, actually. I'm quoting from an article on the Saturday paper um, on May, uh, on, on the week starting May the 12th. It's, it's a really good read. Um, the bus just more. She, she, she picks apart exactly what not being spoken about in Domsky, um, you know, educational business and influences that. Um, she's talking about where, where the money goes and what the philosophical basis of the new Gonski plan is, which is devil take the hindmost. Well, eventually, uh, she might actually come to the dog's position. The only way around it is for these places to be genuinely independent and for no taxpayers' money to go to them. Otherwise, take them over. We pay for them. We more than pay for them. Let's take them over and run them efficiently and have a well-educated populace. Well, I think uh, that's a very interesting uh, Article that you found from Jane Carrow up in Sydney oh. there at the University of Western Sydney, I believe. But um, Also, it's cut off by Lindsay Collins, interestingly enough, so there you go. Yes. She's coming around again too. I think she would have contributed to the Carmel Commission stuff because she was there, wasn't she? Uh, she? She was on the Carmel Commission for a while, yes. She was a, a parent um, representative, but unfortunately she sold out in those days, as far as the dogs are concerned. There was a no state aid position, and uh, she and uh, um, she and uh, Joan Kerner uh, went for a needs policy, which of course is <laughs> the basis of a lot of the trouble now. They're just not getting their needs policy. There never was a needs policy; it very quickly became a greed policy, and they're still saying, "What happened to our?" needs policy. She admits back in 1973 they made a mincemeat of it with Mr Beasley and um, the uh, private school interests. I'm not sure it was just the country party. 
Uh, it was certainly the wealthy schools in Sydney who had been uh, given uh, an A rating, which meant that they lost more money. So they wanted to come down to a B rating, which meant, or a C rating, or a D rating, which meant even though they were very, very wealthy, uh, they would get more money. So that was the way it was done back in 1973, as I remember. Let's have a break. Coming up to that time of year again. Time for you to fight for your might. In a few weeks, we'll be asking you to help us, the dogs, the defenders of government schools, to continue the struggle for another year by donating to 3CR's annual Radiothon. So get ready to fight for your mic and for your community's great state schools during Radiothon 2018. Every week on the Doctor Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great. Schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. Swanhill College is a great state school, has been for many, many years and continues to be. They've actually had a bit of money pumped into the local state government and it's paid off dividends. Sometimes when you spend money, you get something back and that's exactly what's happening at Swanhill College. And here's your background, there's about a thousand students up there on Swanhill. It's on the Murray, sort of about two hours east of Nigeria. It's got about a thousand kids there in the middle of Swanhill and about a thousand teaching and non-teaching staff combined. And they've got a fair few Koori kids up there too. About uh, 50 Koori kids, and also there's, there's 50 different languages spoken in the program. 30% of the kids that turn up at Swanhill College are what called ENAs, which are educational maintenance allowances. That means they come from not just the poorest quartile of Australians, but they, um, they've been judged to need not just educational support, but actually what to do. That's right. That's one of the colleges the largest. Still up there in, 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 in the local area, it's the largest point behind radius. The school zone school is 65 kilometres from radius. That's around about 130k um, diameter, one big circle um, around Victoria. And they cover for around about 15 different primary schools in that area. So a big, chunky country high school out there at Swan Hill. Now, what do they do with these kids? Well, there's about more than half of them in the lowest quartile, and a very large number of those are, are, are right, you know, are come from, from very disadvantaged backgrounds. 30% are in the lower middle quartile. There's only about 20% of the kids that are in the, in the richest half of the Australian population. Only 4% come from land and gentry, but they still go to the school. As I say, there's a fair few Koori kids up there, or Indigenous students, and of course there's a large number of different languages spoken as well. In terms of the teachers, a thousand kids, there's around about 61 full-time equivalent teachers there, and about 43 assistant staff and such like and so forth. Swan Hill is an interesting place. How are they teaching? Are they teaching good? Are they teaching bad? Well, compared to similar schools, they are teaching good. Not just good, but real good when it comes to numeracy and reading, when it comes to all those silly NAPLAN tests, which, well, what, what, what do they tell you? It's really quite strange, isn't it? But even if you do think about what NAPLAN's all on about, they're doing just fine. Compared to all Australian students, they're not, they're, they're doing fine as well. They're, they're not as good as some, but they're certainly better than others. So they're getting a good, if not adequate, if not excellent, if not great, um, education up there at Swan Hill. Um, Prices or cost, as I hear you say, the accountant, how much does it all cost to educate these kids in a regional area and in large part regional and remote area, which obviously means you've got to spend a little bit of extra money to get the kids to school, busting in, busting out, and all the cost that includes. Also the fact that a very large number of these students come from very poor families. How much would this cost? Um, 
it costs around about $14,000 per student. Now, if you think about it, in a secondary college, you spend it between 13 and 15 for an average Australian, which means that Thornhill College is not just doing a good job, they're doing a good job on the cheap. Now, Swan Hill College, for me, highlights two things. I hear many people criticise state schools. They say state schools are not great. They say it for two reasons. First reason, they say, is that, oh, you know, because all the rubbish kids go there. I go, well, what do you mean? And they go, well, you know. And I said, don't know. I don't know. Tell me. And, of course, they won't tell me because in Australia you can't go around saying weird things about class because apparently we don't have class systems. But they go, well, you know, just difficult children go to state schools. That's why they're not good. Sunshines to their retired council president that Dale is going to read us. Yeah, it's actually um, from Sunshine North Primary School and uh, we spoke to Andy last year. It was one of our great state schools. And, um, yeah, it's obviously his year as school as um, of council presidents come to an end. And, um, yeah, the, the principal's just written him a nice letter saying, you know, I write on behalf of Sunshine North Primary School Council to thank you for your contribution during your time as school council president. I think you'll agree that schools are busy places and that councils have many and varied responsibilities. Your leadership as our school council president has guided us in achieving our business and goals in 2017. All schools would struggle to meet their obligations without the generous contributions of volunteers such as yourself, and we thank you for your efforts. I trust you found your time as school council president to be a positive and rewarding experience. I believe we've achieved much, of the, much at the school in recent times, and we should all be proud of our efforts. So once again, on behalf of Sunshine North Primary School Council and the whole school community, thank you for your contribution. And that's from Ken Ryan, the principal. And um, that's the school where, you know, they were talking about, um, you know, they've got a breakfast program because they recognise that not every kid gets breakfast. They've got a, you've been caught being good 
at assembly each week where they highlight the positive things that the kids do out there. So, you know, it's, again, it's just another measure of how important the community is to the successful running of a public school. Oh, Amazing balls. That's cool. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. I, I don't think it's one. You know, and someone actually sat down to write that letter. <laughs> you know, so I mean, it's a busy day. It, that doesn't sound like a formula to me. That sounds like heartfelt. It sounds like relationships that are valued and respected in a state school. All right, we might have a quick break now. We'll be right back. Want to defend government schools? We are the DOGS, D-O-G-S, Defenders of Government Schools. Every week on the DOGS program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. If you're a parent or if you're a kid or if you're involved in the school in any way whatsoever and you love your state school, give 3CR a call. We want to hear about these schools that we're defending. Brunswick Secondary State schools are great. Harkaway Primary School. Sunshine North Primary School. They're really concerned about the welfare of the kids and their growth as people as well as learning. Like you put on plays, you've got enrichment, you've got physical education, visual arts, languages, all that. In fact, is there a cooking? Actually an embracing of kids from disadvantaged backgrounds and with additional needs. More than half of your kids are from some of the poorest families in Australia. Yeah, definitely. That's the community and that's who we're servicing and that's that's who we welcome into the school. Outdoor play is linked to healthier and happier children. This, in turn, leads to better grades. In the weekly assemblies and stuff, they have a little thing, uh, you've been caught being good, and they have a a value of the week each week, and so it's not just words that is actually... So so what do the teachers do when it's a building site? Yeah, they kick themselves out of their own staff room and turn it into a classroom. Just a really nice culture and an emphasis on social skill building as well as learning. Quite a range of intellectual ability and kids with mental health diagnoses, refugee kids, kids who have not been in the country very long don't necessarily start off with a Positive great Positive relationships with each other, with the teachers and with the community. And they run a, a breakfast club. There's a recognition that some kids don't get breakfast and so there's, there's food on. If you are involved in a state school and it's a great school, we'd love to hear from you so we can talk about it and tell the world. Leave a message for the dogs at 3CR on 9419 State schools are great schools. Great state schools. Well, let's have some information from overseas. What's happening in America and the UK? I've got something from America and Dale has got something from the UK. In North Carolina, two... 20,000, I'm sorry, not two, 20,000 have skipped school as the teachers' strike movement swells. We've told you in the last few weeks about the striking teachers who have had enough of Mr Trump and his education secretary, Betty DeVos, and classes across the state of North Carolina, which is a red state, I believe, were cancelled as teachers and their supporters protested low salaries and poorly funded schools. When I said a red state, I meant it's a Republican state. Teachers demanded change using the Twitter hashtag and they said it's personal. One 48-year-old African-American teacher, Michelle Burton, who was a librarian at the Durham County School System, said, yes, it's personal. She'll do what Mr Trump does. She'll use uh, Twitter. Uh, and she was standing next to a marching band playing the Star Wars theme under a banner that said, Education Strikes Back. Now, she was far from alone. She was one of 20,000, as I said before, and their supporters who used personal days on Wednesday to call out of work, forcing 40 North Carolina school districts to cancel classes for more than one million students. So they made a point, didn't they? The protest, this protest that I'm talking about, the 20,000 in North Carolina, which is a conservative state, marked the sixth state to go on strike since the West Virginia teachers successfully struck in March, highlighting low salaries and poorly funded public schools. The series of strikes in the education sector have won plaudits from across the labour movement and have struck a chord as public opinion polling shows overwhelming support. They've also won concrete economic gains in terms of pay rises in states like West Virginia, Oklahoma and Arizona. Now, this teacher that we opened up with, the 48-year-old African-American teacher called Michelle Burton, is a second-generation graduate of the University of North Carolina. And uh, she said that 
uh, the underfunding of public schools was something she truly did take personally because her father, who was a graduate of the class of 1965, helped to integrate the university during the civil rights era. Remember when they were segregated down south? North Carolina had this reputation as a southern state that was very progressive and we would go back to that if we funded our schools, said Burton. However, over the last two decades of teaching, Burton has seen that system deteriorate. North Carolina stood 39th nationwide in terms of public school teacher pay in 2017 and teacher wages have fallen by 9.4% in real terms over the last decade. And over the same period, spending on public schools has dropped by 80%. So um, they're out and they're about in America and the teachers are prepared to go on strike and fight back. In the United States, education is fighting back and he's hoping that that will um, have an effect later in the year when they go to the polls. Not for the president, unfortunately, but for, I think, the Congress and Senate. So that's what's happening over there in America. And now Dale has got some news from the UK. Thanks, Jean. Yeah, this is an article by Donna Ferguson. It's quite shocking about uh, head teachers turning to charities as families sleep by bins. This is from The Guardian, mm. the UK Guardian, yeah. With schools struggling to help growing numbers of deprived pupils, we look at organisations that can offer practical support. East London head teacher Lorna Jackson says that by working with the charity SHS, which is School Home Support, her school has helped more than 100 families with basic needs such as food. It was a site Lorna Jackson, a London head teacher, had never expected to see two pupils at her primary school sleeping behind bins at the station with their parents. Mum, Dad and the two little children were all sleeping on a mattress they'd found. The family had been evicted and the children had very little to eat. Jackson's school, Maryland Primary in Stratford, is in a deprived area of East London. As well as suffering homelessness, her pupils are regularly victims of domestic violence. I realised that my role had changed. Unless I addressed our children's well-being, their education was not going to have any impact at all. Jackson's not alone in feeling this way. As Education Guardian recently reported, teachers are reaching into their own pockets to pay for anything from pregnancy tests to funerals for families at their schools. But not all staff can afford this. Teachers' charities are seeing an increase in the number of teachers who are themselves struggling to make ends meet, with twice as many education workers applying for financial assistance grants from Turn to Us in 2017, compared with 2010. When some teachers are in dire financial circumstances themselves, how can they help their pupils get the long-term support these many many children so desperately need? Food, clothes, a mattress, three funerals. What teachers buy for children? Jackson turned to the education charity School Home Support. Using money from her pupil premium budget, she installed an SHS practitioner in the school full-time. Schools with these practitioners can access the charity's welfare fund, which buys items for struggling families, such as food, washing machines and school uniforms. The charity can also support families in navigating the benefits system and court orders. Jackson has helped more than 100 families at her school this way. For example, her SHS practitioner realised a young pupil was stealing from classmates' lunchboxes to feed her baby sister. The girl, her parents and her eight siblings had no access to benefits and were living in squalid conditions and struggling to get to food banks. So the charity paid for a weekly food shop, carried out and delivered by Jackson herself, toothpaste, clothes, schools and bedding for the children. The SHS practitioner also organised emergency help from social services and English lessons and helped the parents find work and access child benefits. The practitioner's placement does not always cost school money, says the charity's chief executive, Jane Stannard, who urges all teachers needing help to get in touch. Sometimes the work can be partially or fully funded by our partners, so it's really helpful if the schools register their interest. The charity offers free membership to schools that cannot afford or do not need a full-time practitioner. 
This gives school staff access to SHS's online forum, for example, where they can ask about accessing food banks and other resources and talk about pastoral problems. Teachers have to be therapists one moment and social workers the next. Another organisation, the Red Box Project, delivers free sanitary products to schools and colleges across the UK and reports new schools and and groups signing up each month. Frida, an online retailer of organic, eco-friendly sanitary towels and tampons, donates products to the project and allows its customers to do the same. By providing these products for free for schoolgirls, we're allowing them to attend school all month with dignity, says Afi Pavitsi-Wayne, the founder of Frida. The Trussell Fund, food charity, wants schools to know they can sign up to hold vouchers for their local food banks. Referring families for emergency food in the short term will not only help with families' immediate needs, it will enable volunteers at the food banks to talk to to talk to them about other services they can access for long-term help, the charity says. Quaker Social Action is keen to help families struggling to pay for pupils' funerals and funeral-related debt. It also offers advice on how bereaved families can get help from employers, the government and other organisations and can put families in contact with children's funeral directors who may be willing to waive their costs. In the past, we've had a head teacher get in touch after becoming concerned about a pupil situation at home after a parental bereavement, says spokesperson Giles Robertson. Our advice on ways to raise money and heavily reduce costs can help families like this avoid debt and further grief. Yes, and all this has happened, this idea that charity is needed for basics in the UK since Thatcher in the 1980s, and we're seeing it in Australia too, of course. It's the neoliberal. There's a a very strange, strange, strange ideology. But um, that's it, I think, for this week. And uh, thanks to Dale and Robert for helping out. And uh, we'll be back, of course, next week at the same time, 12 noon. And if you want to find out more about us, you can go to www.adogs.info. But it's bye for now. I dreamed I saw Joe here last night Alive as you and me Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead I never died, says he I never died, says he In Salt Lake City, Joe, says I Him standing by my bed They framed you on a murder charge Says Joe, but I'm dead Says Joe, but I'm dead The copper bosses killed you, Joe They shot you, Joe, says I Takes more than guns to kill a man Says Joe, I didn't die Says Joe, I didn't die And standing there as big as life And smiling with his eyes Says Joe, what they can never kill Went on to organize Went on to organize From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers strike and organize It's there you find your hill It's there you find Joe, you're ten years dead.